Today's message is kind of heavy. Uh, today's passage is one that is kind of tough. Um, and as, as Pastor Brian asked me um, about a month or so ago to, to fill the pulpit today, he, uh, there's, there's a, a selection of texts that for, for a long, long time the church has kind of used uh, to like read through. Um, and if you go through in about, in about four years, if you take one of those texts, uh, you can go through the majority of Scripture. Um, just kind of hitting, hitting on some of the main points. And um, so for the past few times that I have, that I have came and, and preached, I've, I've taken one of those texts and, and talked about it. And today I'm, I'm doing the same thing. Um, but whereas last time we were, we were looking in, uh, in John where Jesus is, is giving a kind of a discourse and a teaching to his, uh, to his disciples that we've kind of taken to heart. Instead, today we are looking at a story in the Old Testament. Um, and, and the way that we kind of understand a story is different than a, uh, just kind of a teaching. So when, when we read the New Testament, when we read Paul, for example, he says, hey, let me tell you this. And it kind of has some application built into it. Or when Jesus tells us a parable, like this is a story with an application built into it. When we look at the Old Testament, uh, we oftentimes don't have application built into it. So what we are going to be doing today is reading a passage and seeing what is, what is the purpose of it today? What is the point of, of the text? Um, why does this story, this, this historical account, matter to us as Christians today? Um, and the text we are going to be looking at is 2 Samuel uh, chapter 18. And this is, uh, if, you, if you have the little, little titles in your Bible... Uh, it will say either Absalom killed or the death of Absalom or something along those lines. Uh, to give us a little bit of background, um, Absalom is David's third son. Uh, he, is, he is not the oldest. Uh, in fact, Absalom kills David's oldest son. Uh, David's oldest son, uh, his name was Amon. Amon violated Absalom's sister, and so uh, in order to get revenge on Amon, Absalom kills his half-brother. After that, he flees from David. Uh, he, he goes away for, for his own personal safety um, and is, is estranged from David for a while. Um, needless to say, there's going to be some tension there. Um, after some time, Absalom and David are reunited. Um, there's a brief reunification. Uh, there's a brief restoration before Absalom decides he can do things better than his dad, better than his father, and decides that he is going to be the king of Israel. Absalom raises an army. Uh, Absalom actually takes the capital and is going to fight this battle that we see in 2 Samuel 18 uh, to kind of seal the deal. This is like the nail in the coffin battle. If Absalom wins this fight, then he will become the king of Israel. We know this is troubling because God has anointed David as the king of Israel. Absalom also knows that David's son will be the next king of Israel. And he says, that son should be me because I know better than my father. 
So my army is going to go and kill the army of my father so that I can take what is mine, so that I can take what I deserve. However, we're going to see this doesn't turn out like he expected. This doesn't turn out like he wanted. And so this is where our story begins. Absalom has raised an army, and the battle has begun. The Israelites are fighting in a civil war, and each side is being led by either the father or the son. But before we get lost in the details of the story, I want you to know why we're looking at this. I want you to know what's the purpose. We're not just looking at some some Israelite history. We don't just want a history lesson about a, a battle or a war that was fought. Instead, we are looking at kind of this tension that we see between father and son, this tension that we see in family relationships. This is a relationship between the two of them that we do not want to strive for. This is not what I want my relationship with my son or my daughter to look like. And I, I don't think this is what you would prefer yours to look like either. So as we keep this in mind, we're going to see um, this, this relationship is one that is strained at best, but we are looking for hope. We are looking for hope in this terrible, terrible story. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be kind of difficult. It's a little gruesome as well. But I promise you, by the end of it, we find hope that is greater than anything we could ask for. Um, so we are going to be looking for three things. One, the parent-child conflict in the story. Two, how this applies to us. And three, the hope that the scripture can bring us. So we'll be in 2 Samuel 18. Uh, we will look at two sections in here, one at the beginning of the chapter, one at the end. We're going to skip a little of the details in the middle. They're, they're important, sure, but, but not for, they're going to they're gonna distract us more than, more than help us see the point. Um, so we're going to start in verse, uh, verse 5, um, and we'll read through verse 15. Then we will jump to verse 31. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Remember, they're about to fight. So David is saying, hey, deal gently with my son. When you see him on the battlefield, please don't kill him. Deal gently with my son. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all of the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding his mule, and the mule went under with thick branches of a great oak. And his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why did you not then strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son, 
For in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake protect the young man, Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloft. Uh, Joab said, I will not waste time with this, like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Let's go to verse 31. And behold, the Cushite, a messenger, uh, came. And the Cushite said, Good news for the Lord, the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of the Lord and the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he wept, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So I told you this one's heavy. This text brings us through this roller coaster. Right, to summarize, Absalom goes to fight the army of David to take the kingdom for himself. His army is defeated. Absalom is retreating. And he gets stuck in a tree. Um, And as I was talking to Pastor Brian about this, this is one of the strangest kind of stories that we get. Um, Absalom is known for having this, this long, luscious hair. Um, earlier in the, in the scripture, it says that he would cut it every year and it would keep growing back. And according to some measurements, uh, it would say that his hair would grow up to like five pounds a year, uh, depending on how you, how you measured the, the thing. I don't know if that's entirely correct. The weight gave me two different numbers, but that's the one that the commentators all said was good. Regardless, this is a lot of hair. Hair, although it's very weak, you can pull it out, you can break it, you can cut it very easily. When there's a lot of hair, it is very strong. In fact, it's actually said that a full head of hair, if you took it all and bound it together into something like a rope, the weight that it could support is an elephant's weight, if not more. So Absalom, this man with this long, beautiful hair, is stuck in the tree, and he can't get down. Now, why didn't he cut his hair? I don't know. Maybe his sword happened to fall when he was riding away. Maybe he couldn't reach it. Maybe he didn't have one. Maybe he was that confident in his victory. That part we don't know other than he is stuck. He cannot get out. He is helpless. He is hopeless. And he is brutally killed. David hears about the death of his son. And I want you to to remember with me. How does he respond to the news of the victory in this battle? He doesn't say, yes, thank God we won. Instead he says, how's my son? How is my son? We know there's strife between this father and the son. The story is very dark, very bleak. So how does this give us hope? I want to look at a few things before we get there. Help us kind of set up some of the ground that we are going to look at. The story first 
brings to the forefront all of these issues that David and Absalom had in the past. We know they have a, a troubled relationship, a troubled past, um, and, and we've even skipped over some of the things that Absalom has done like throughout the rest of Scripture. Um, there's this, this definite conflict between Absalom and David, and this theme of parent-child conflict is all around Scripture, and I think it's even still here today. Um, and this isn't even the first time we see this in Scripture. Right after the flood, we see that Noah curses one of his sons. We see that there's conflict and deception between Isaac and Jacob. Uh, we see there's favoritism shown by Jacob to one of his sons, which uh, leads the other brothers to even want to kill their brother. We see that even Samson, one of, one of God's judges, deceives his family and rejects the advice and the wisdom from his mother and father. But what about today? We've, we've talked about a few examples in the Old Testament, a few examples in Scripture. Can anyone, anyone... Think of a time where we can see parent-child conflict in the world today. I don't think so. I didn't think of a single one. Right? We've, we've all had that. We've all experienced it. You're either in it now, you've seen it in the past, maybe it's come and gone, maybe things have fluctuated, but we know this is an issue. We know this is an idea, and one of the cool things is that Scripture doesn't just leave us to dry. It doesn't just say, all right, well, hope you figure it out. Instead, we've got hope. Instead, we've got something better. Um, and so while we see parents and children will still have conflict with one another, um, what we are going to look at is how do we maintain and even strengthen and build our relationships with one another? How can we do this in a way that is, that is fruitful, that is helpful, that is gospel-centric? How can we... Uh, even even learn from God and be imitators of God in those things as well. Um, and so the reason that we're spending so much time on this idea, on this 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 idea of, of parents and children, is that David, as a parent himself, shared in this struggle. Um, but David is actually not even the perfect example of parenting. In fact, what we, what we see throughout different parts in Scripture is usually when we have a parent and a child uh, or a parent dealing with their children, a lot of times we see the opposite picture. We see bad parents. We see sinful parents. We see wicked, deceptive parents. Um, and this is hard for people in, in my generation for, uh, like as long as I was growing up in Sunday school and in my youth group, all I was told was like, hey, be like these people that you see in the Bible, right? Be like Daniel, who stands up to the king and is thrown into the lion's den. Be like Noah, who trusted God and was saved on the ark. Be like Joseph, who still was persistent, even in times of unfair persecution and unfair trial. But, but instead, when we get to David, we're not going to say, hey, be like David. He's, he's a great dad. Um, obviously, there's something going wrong we're never told, hey, be like Abraham, who was such a good dad that he sent one of his kids out in the wilderness to starve and die. 
Right? That's not what we're told here. Instead, we are, we are shown people are sinful and we need a fix. Parents, we are sinful and we need a fix. And I'll get to you children too, because guess what? You are also sinful and need a fix. This is where we find our hope. So the good thing is that this story is not telling us to be like David and Absalom. In fact, it's telling us the opposite. Don't do this. Don't have this fight. Don't lead a war against each other. This, this conflict between father and son, the Bible tells us it cost 20,000 lives. So many people died because of, because of this conflict that we see here. This is not a good thing. This conflict between father and son, between mother and daughter, parent and child is not good. And, and this, can, this can translate over to our other relationships as well, right? Like conflict with one another. If Pastor Brian and I have a conflict, this is not going to be something that's healthy. If my wife and I have a conflict, that is not going to produce uh, the gospel that we see, right? Instead, it's, it's going to bring danger and harm. So when we see this in our own homes, when we see this with our children, this should be something that we are wanting to avoid and instead wanting to to find a better solution, right? find a better way. So the good thing is we are not being told to be like David. We are not being told to be like Absalom. Both are faulty pictures in this story. Instead, the story is going to actually point us to a good father. It's going to point us to a good father. And in order to do this, I want us to go back to the last verse that we read. Uh, verse 33. It says, after David hears the news, and it says, The king wept deeply and was moved and went to his chamber over the gate and wept. And he said, Oh, oh my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. What would have happened if David had died throughout this conflict? Who would still be alive? Absalom. David is saying, I wish that I was dead so that my son could live. It is here that we find hope. It is here that we see a father in Scripture who looks at his rebellious Son, his son who wishes that he was dead and even lives like he was dead, his sinful, wicked son who deserves very much to die. And that father says, You know what? I will die instead of my son. And my death will bring life for my son. Right? This, is, this is pointing us to God. God who, who took our punishment and our guilt upon himself and dies the death that we deserve so that we can have life. Kind of the cool thing too is like, this is not just simply like a random, a random person, but like if Absalom had, had won this battle, he would have been the king. He would have been royalty. God too in dying, this king of all creation, the king of all things, 
calls us his sons and his daughters. By relation, that also would make us royalty. Right? So this king, this good father, dies in order to make a rebellious son royalty. What a cool parallel. Right? This, is the, this is the completed picture of a good father who's not oblivious to our circumstances. Who's not oblivious to parent-child conflict because guess what? We are pretty bad. I am pretty sinful. My heart, from my birth, as we see David even write about, is broken and is in sin. I have, I have what we call a sin nature. And God knows that. God looks at my heart and says, Wow, Parker has such a sinful nature. He can't even follow me unless I die for him. And so what does God do? Does he leave me to dry? Does he wait till I'm good? Does he wait till I finally figure it out? No. Instead we see God does what David cannot and he dies for his son. He dies for his son to bring this relationship to a whole. God is the perfect father who never sins, loves unconditionally. And so before I move on to to children and, and talking about it, the different aspect of that, I, I do want to encourage you real quick. How many of you in here who are parents or who will be parents or who have been parents, how many of you are perfect? No one? This is not me raising my hand. I'm trying to encourage you. Because I've, I've learned if you raise your hand and you ask a question, then people are more likely to follow suit if they agree with you. Um, if you leave your hands down, especially when teaching high schoolers, no one will raise their hand. Um, so we'll, I'll, this, is, this is not me answering the question in the affirmative, so let me, let me try again. How many of you have been perfect parents who have been a perfect example, have never sinned or are righteous, uh, have constantly led your children well? No? All right, now this is me answering, me either. But guess who has been the perfect parent? This is, this is God. Here's where I want to encourage you. I'm not telling you that when you are the perfect parent, your kids will be perfect. This is simply not the picture we see in Scripture. Because God, as the perfect parent, still dies for his wicked children, me. God, the one who is faultless, flawless, his children are still in rebellion. Even the ones who were made without the sin nature, Adam and Eve, still sin under the guidance of the perfect father. So I'm not telling you you're a bad parent. Please do not hear that. Kids, I'm not telling you you're off the hook. But we have hope here. So the other character in this story, we've, we've kind of focused on David as a, a, for a little bit as the, as the son. We see that, that David... Uh, David, as the father, is not the perfect father, but he points us to the perfect father, to the one who is good. The other character in here is the rebellious son that wishes his father was dead. Right, this, is, this is Absalom. This is uh, a little more pointed to, to some of you who are kids, but haven't we all been kids? Many of you still have your parents. We still have those relationships. So I think we can all still learn something from here. In the same way, 
Parents are not the only factor in a parent-child relationship. Uh, in fact, I'd, I'd even say that children are about 50% of that uh, relationship, at least. See, there's a joke. I got one in. Um, but kids, don't, don't we sometimes act like Absalom? By rebelling against our parents, wanting to do things a different or maybe even a better way? But the question here we, we want to see is, does that mean it's right? And so we've, we've even looked at Absalom's picture and seen, like, you know, this, this ultimately leads to destruction. As we'll look at in a minute, uh, Scripture kind of, kind of warns us about, about this. And we'll, we'll look at why and, and how in just a moment. But all of us have acted in the same way as Absalom toward God. We've all said, God, we wish that you were not alive. We wish that your rules did not apply to us. We wish that we could do what we wanted. Uh, We do this over and over. So we see that both of these characters can teach us something. David, as as the father who fails, points us to God, the father, that we should hopefully strive to be. Absalom, the son who fails, points us to ourselves, the sons and daughters who fail, but point us again to the Father that we should want to know. This Father who cares about us. We are the children who deserve death because of our actions against a holy and perfect Father. But as we see here, we're reminded that our Father dies for us. Our Father dies for us. I was thinking about this this text and I thought about my my son. Um, many of you have, have seen him. He's, he's a ball of energy. He's so much fun. Um, but if anything happened to my son, he's only one. Right? So my, my parenting experience is not nearly as, as full as, as many of you in the room. I have a one-year-old and a three-year-old. But if anything happened to my son or my daughter, I would, I would be devastated. Absolutely devastated. I would be in the same picture as David who says, My son, if I could take your place, I would. My daughter, if I could take your place, I would. Our children have value. Our children have importance. It is here that we see kind of this this reciprocal relationship. This father-son conflict, this parent-child conflict is only solved through this this relationship that we see modeled after our own father toward his own son. Parents showing this love for their children. Children seeing their need and even sometimes their fault turning to the love of the father. So in the end, we see that David's desire is life for his son, even though he deserves death. His desire is for the relationship with his son to be restored and full and not to be simply over. And that's our goal here today. That is our hope here today. So how does this all tie together? We've, We've kind of looked at the story. We've seen God's a good father. We are bad kids. 
What does this have to do with us? How does this change the way that we live? How does this change the way that we parent? How does this change the way that we children? I don't know. That's not a good... uh, How does this change the way that we respond to our parents and act towards our parents? Uh, I think, again, let's be reminded of, of what God has done for us before we get to some maybe more more general like specific do this type of type of instruction one is that we want to constantly look at God our father seeing that he is the example that we parents should strive for in relationship with our kids um, now again my my kids are still fairly young three and one um, but I see some of this like still affecting me today. Right? We, we have pretty good relationships. There's not anything that's, that's really, you know, like there's not been a major conflict of any kind, right? Usually if there's a conflict, it's because my daughter wants to stay up later or because she wants to play with something that my son has or my son gets mad and so he hits my daughter. You know, like this, this isn't super huge conflict like we see here with David and Absalom. But we do know that conflict still happens. So what I'm not trying to do is, is give you my sage parenting advice and tell you, oh, I've been such a good parent for these three years. No, in, instead I'm, I'm saying, again, let's together look at the Father. Let's together look and see what God has done for us and maybe find a way to model this ourselves. Um, the second thing is, that we all desire, parents and children, a relationship with one another. Um, I've been in, in youth ministry for seven years now. Um, and something that over and over, regardless of the group of kids or, or which ones are there, um, when I've asked them, like, hey, what is, what is something that's, that's hard from time to time? Uh, the answer has been, well, our relationships with our parents. But whenever you ask, do you want a good relationship with your parents? Do you wish that you had a strong relationship with your parents? Every time, the answer is yes. Every time, the answer is yes. Do they always act that way? No. Do we as parents always act that way? Maybe not. But the desire is there. This is actually God's design for it. right? To have this full relationship between father and son, between mother and daughter, parent and child. Like this, is, this is how God has made us. right? To be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. To work together in this relationship that God has modeled since Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3. All the way to the end of Revelation. Right? This relationship with his parents. I mean, relationship with his children as the perfect parent. And so, how can we have good relationships with one another? I have a couple questions that may may help us get on the same page, okay? Um, so, this one's just for parents. Kids, you can you can kind of chill for a second. Um, parents, wouldn't it be so much easier 
to have a good relationship with your kids if they were perfect? We'll try that again. Parents, would it be so much easier to have a good relationship with your kids if they were perfect? Yes or no? Yes. Kids, wouldn't it be so much easier to have a good relationship with your parents if they were perfect? Yes. I'll answer it for you so you don't get in trouble. Um, So what we see here is there is a problem. There's a problem with us. That problem is our sin. David writes about having a sin nature. That sin nature is found in David as a parent. It's also found in Absalom as a child. It's also found in you and you and you and you and you and you and me. But we have a father, again, who dies to take this nature, to take this heart and change it. So before we say... Our relationships are too far gone. Our kids are too far gone. Or there is no hope. Remember yourself. Christian, remember yourself and your heart has been changed and made new. You are a new creation. Your relationship with your father is good. Because he is good. So let's see, what can we do to imitate this? I want us to go to a few, uh, few places in Scripture to kind of help, help solidify some of these ideas. Like, what practically can we do then? Right? Because we want good relationships. Sure, we are all in agreement on that. We want to have these good relationships together. But there's sin involved. There's sometimes difficulty involved. What do we do? How do we be like this good father? Because we could say, oh, just be like God. Right? That's not going to work out so well. Right, we, need, we need something concrete. We need to say, how can I imitate the good father? Or even, kids, how can we imitate a better son? Right, how, can we, how can we foster these relationships together? Uh, first, we're going to go to Romans 5, 8. These are going to be some good reminders for all of us. Do we need to wait till our kids are perfect? Or kids, do you need to wait till your parents are perfect to start a relationship with them? No. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet or still sinners, Christ died for us. So if we're waiting till things are good or we're waiting till things are perfect, you're going to be waiting a long time and nothing's ever going to start. Remember the attitude of Christ who dies for us while we are sinners to bring us into this relationship with him. God, praise God for doing that for us. He didn't wait till we were fully obedient. Um, I, I know parents, um, and even, even my parents have, have acted in this way, uh, wanting, wanting their children to do everything well or to, to be perfectly or to, to, not, to not sin or to not disobey, and then the relationship kind of follows in that pattern. Right? Like we've, we've seen that maybe in ourselves, maybe in the lives of others, but I don't think this is the biblical example, Right? Behavior should not determine the love shown for one another. Mainly because Christ did not do that when he, when he related to us. What about when we disobey? What about when we, when we struggle? Uh, we're going to go to our next passage. This is, this is Ephesians chapter 6, uh, 1 through 4. It tells us, children... 
Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So should, am I, am I saying like, hey parents, just love your kids, and it's fine, they'll do whatever? No, like this, this is not the biblical example. Right? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment in the, with a promise that it may go well with you, and you may live long in the land. But Paul continues, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. We're not good on our own. Kids, we don't know everything yet. Part of this is having to be taught to us. How do we teach? Again, I think we teach in a way that is similar to our good father who very kindly and graciously takes us by the hand because he loves us and leads us in the way that we should live. Changes our hearts and teaches us so that we can know him better, so that we can know him more. So what about our sin? Um, How does God... I'm getting ahead of myself. One thing that God does for us here... um, Why do you obey God? Why do we as Christians obey God? Is it because we're told to? At times, maybe. But what is going to make you want to obey God? Make you want to obey Scripture and follow what Scripture teaches? The more we know our God that is preached in the Scriptures, the more I love God. God with all of my heart and my soul and my mind and my strength. That is the thing that is going to lead me and drive me to want to obey and follow God. I think this goes the same with with my parents. If I hated my dad and he told me to clean my room, I wouldn't clean my room. Because I don't like him. I don't want to do what he says. But instead, if I love my dad, he says, hey, I want you to go clean your room. Let me help you clean your room. Let me come alongside you and teach you how to clean your room. I think my love for my father would grow. I think my love for my father would change and motivate me for the next time when my dad says, hey, why don't you go clean your room? And out of the love for my father... I would do this. So does God expect us to just do this on our own? No. Instead we see in Romans 2, 4, Paul asks the questions, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and his patience, not knowing that God's kindness and forbearance and patience is meant to lead us to repentance. To lead us to forsaking our sin and obeying what we see in Scripture. So again, where is this obedience founded? It's founded in this relationship with God that He gives to us. It's rooted in the kindness and the love that God has shown to me so that I will in turn love my Father. Right, we see this is a reciprocal relationship. These two things are going to go together. 
Not just in our relationship with God, but I think also in our relationships with our kids. Psalm 103, verse 8, tells us that the Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And then, then even in Romans 6, 1 and 2, it asks us, like, what about, what about our sin, right? And when a father has shown us our sin, does what should we say? Are we to continue living in that? Do we continue living in this disobedience? No. How can we who have died still live in that? Children, your parents love you. Why should we? Why do we? over and over, disobey, disrespect, dishonor our parents. Instead, we're seeing that both sides here, children and parents alike, we both need this heart change. And it's only through that that our relationships can be restored and made right. What I'm, what I'm presenting here is, is a different kind of parenting that I, than I grew up with and different than, than even we see in our, in our culture today. Um, but I think the ideas here that this relationship is going to define our actions and our attitude is deeply founded in scripture and in fact we even asked God to do some of this for us today let me, let me read to you what we, have, what we have asked our father to do for us it's going back to our prayer of confession. We said, be mindful of your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. We jump to our assurance of pardon that Pastor Brian read for us. It tells us, for in him... In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. This Father giving us his love when we don't deserve it, giving us forgiveness when we don't deserve it, taking me by the hand and changing me, helping me to learn to love God more, even though I don't deserve it. This is why we're looking at this, this is why we're talking about it. This is where we find the hope. Ultimately, where we end is is here. That God, the one who knew you as a rebellious son, chose to die for you. And he has the power and the ability to change the heart of someone like you and I. For parents and for children. He alone has the power to mend our broken relationships and heal the wounds. And so let's ask him to do that in us. Let's ask him to change us, children and, and parents both, so that we can have relationships that model and reflect the relationship of the good father to his children. One that is full of his grace and his mercy and his love for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And even in a, in a heavy story that we see with, with David and his son Absalom, I ask that you would 
Help us not to make these same mistakes. That we would not fall into the same sin or pattern as Absalom. But instead that we would turn to you. Consciously, fully, every day. Knowing the depth of our sin and the, the state of our heart. That you would change us. That you would model for that you would you would continue to mold us that would follow in the model of relationship for father and son that you have shown us and demonstrated first help me to be the father i need to be help me to be the son that i need to be help remind us that we can only be these things through what you first do in us in your name we pray Amen.